Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show we have three central planks to our writing manifesto. Plank the first to help you write more, plank the second to help you write better and plank the third to help you be a little bit happier as you do those things to that end. Sometimes I look at listeners' first pages and give them a little bit of advice on how they could make them better. Sometimes I monologue on the subject of writing and sometimes I have guests on to talk to me about making stories. Today's guest is the uh, comic book artist John Allison. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but he um, created the comic strips uh, Scary Go Round and Bad Machinery and Giant Days. And uh, most recently, and this is one that we um, touch on and talk about a little bit on our chat, um, Steeple. Uh, they're online. Uh, uh, Steeple, um, I'll put a link in the show notes. That's a really good jumping in point. I think, actually, um, because there's quite a lot of characters and lore and they're incredibly kind of like rich uh, universe with a repeating, um, although a large cast that he's been working on for years. And to be honest, the reason that I asked John on was because we have one of the one of his comics framed on our wall um, and we have done in this house and in the previous house I I lived in um, with my wife because it has a, uh, a a lyric from my wife's band featured in the comic and uh, that's why she got that and framed it and I, I look at his work every day and I was like oh my gosh I have a podcast it gives me a sort of tangential reason to sometimes pester people whose work I think is brilliant and so I sort of dug my toe into the carpet and put it off for literally months and months and months and then one day just kind of screwed up my courage and sent John an email and he got back and said yeah I'd love to and we chatted and he was a fantastic guest so I've not had a comic book artist on before and John draws and writes his comics so it seemed to me a great opportunity to talk about storytelling, but also talk about the visual aspects of storytelling and the challenges and the opportunities that that gives. And we talk about all sorts of stuff. And I think there are some incredibly brilliant insights in today's episode from John in terms of creating characters, in terms of what characters need and, and what's true of all characters. Um, you know, funnily enough, we don't really distinguish between so much between protagonists and bit characters you know they're all on a spectrum of characterness and three-dimensionalness and, and john talks about very passionately about what what he cares about and what makes a character three-dimensional and um i found it really and there's some like real practical takeaways as, as well as just a great chat that we had about growing up in small slightly isolated parts of England and English weirdness and the weirdness of England in the 90s and the kind of like the everyday mixed with the bizarre that I think is is part I don't know if it's quintessentially sort of rural England I don't I, I wonder I suspect every country has some version of it but I think it certainly relies on small communities and I look I'm not I'm actually going to refrain from uh 
preempting this talk any, uh, as much as I normally do because I'd like you to be able to get into it and enjoy it yourself. But um, it's uh, you know it's really 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 good chat. I I enjoyed it loads, and I I I still you know having recorded must be getting up to 80 hours of interviews with with writers and authors and story makers and creators now i still don't feel in any way qualified to be the person interviewing them uh but i'm selfish and greedy and i want to chat to them and i find having this water cooler uh, just immensely valuable to me in my life and i think it affects my writing in ways that i just take utterly for granted and I, I realize now when I talk about stories to people when I talk about writing when I teach classes I just like say back a lot of stuff that people have said to me in these conversations as if it were my idea not because I'm trying to take the credit but just because it becomes part of my philosophy and, and part of my deep beliefs and I just forget that I didn't know them intrinsically I learned it so I hope that these chats are useful for you as well and just to remind you that if you go on the death of a thousand cuts archive uh and you, you can just go on soundcloud.com forward slash tim clare and there's the entire over 300 episode archive and there's a playlist of just the interviews as well you can listen back and hear loads of wonderful creators in a variety of media talking about their amassed experience and ideas and tips and advice or intuitions or things that they've run up against and things that keep them going and i i just hope that it's as useful uh, an archive and a wellspring of ideas listening to basically a, a, f a free not lecture series but you just you just get to have these seminars with like loads of really really fantastic creators links to john's comics in the show notes of today's episode um but like i say i suggest like steeple seems to me a really good jumping off point and i think you'll enjoy it and it, it was just lovely it was just really really lovely chatting to john he was really funny really entertaining and i got a lot out of it if you enjoy the show then i would not stop you i would not throw myself in front of your finger to prevent you clicking on your mouse and going to my uh, coffee page uh, that's ko-fi.com forward slash tim clare dropping uh, the show a few beans to keep it going don't have a sponsor so that's it's just really kept alive by the generosity of listeners um i hope that this is good for you that's it that's it i'm done i don't need any more preempting uh i think that the uh, chat speaks for itself please i bid you enjoy uh my chat with john allison what i'd really like to start with john um i'd really like to know when did you first can you remember the first time you made a story with pictures yes yes i can uh i the first story with pictures i made um now, sort of going beyond, like, they used to make you write stories at school. Like, you would have to draw a picture and then write a story under it. But I did not enjoy this process. And I remember I would just write as much to fill the page and stop dead at the end of the page. Like, the deadline was the end of the page. And I, and I remember my teacher saying to my my mum at a, a parents' evening, where perhaps when I was six, saying, John always stops at the end of the page. So I remember the next lesson, writing two lines on the next page to prove that I would... So. <laughs> But I do not recall anything about those. The first actual 
creative work where I felt like I was invested in making a piece of art and not fulfilling a school assignment. Well, I think I did a, a Transformers story when I was perhaps, it would have been 1984, so I would have been eight. And um, I can remember listing what I was going to draw on every page. There would be eight pages and I drew them on the backs of Kleenex boxes. My mum used to cut the backs off. We were very thrifty in our house, cut Kleenex boxes up for shopping lists and the backs, which were quite a nice hard surface to draw on. You didn't need anything to rest on on the floor. I remember using eight of those to make the story and I'd listed on every page what was going to happen on it, building up some kind of incredible climax. And that is my first story. And it's probably the greatest story ever written as far as I can work out. It's genius. You 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 planned it. You you, you I think that's incredible for like because normally my experience of writing stuff as a, a kid and drawing before I you know I was drawing things before I was of getting myself into fixes and then going, I've got no idea where this is going or realising very quickly that I couldn't sustain this story and having all the characters get squashed under like a big foot or something. Yeah, like, I mean, I, I certainly wish that I'd applied that level of organisation to work I did thereafter. But <laughs> um, I was quite a snob about stories when I was a kid. I knew what I liked. I knew which artists I liked in comics and who were the good artists. And... Um, I also sort of because that's the structure of those sort of action licensed comics is, was quite hackneyed. You know, they really like it was a, a, a bit of intrigue, a baddie, a punch up and then some sort of conclusion. And they all followed exactly the same sort of structure. If you were you know young and unsophisticated, that was what seemed to be happening. You know, you weren't you weren't conscious of the, the mise en scène. You were just looking at the punch up. And so I sort of knew that was the order that things were done in. And so I just wrote down, right, I've got to do all these things, these eight things. And, and at the end of it, I assume they'll give me some sort of medal. Uh, and that was it. Yeah. So that, that was the that was the first story I wrote. Well, well, who were the artists that, you know, in your young connoisseurship, you were going like, oh, this is the juice. Like the ones that you were like, ah, this is these are the fine wines that have been aging in the cellar. Um, well, the, there was a guy who used to draw Transformers who was called Jeff Senior, who was whose art was so exciting and dynamic that even if you were very young, you could tell that I could tell that his work was streets ahead of all the other artists. Like I could there was something exciting about it that made me want to draw comics rather than just look at them. You know, I'd, I'd read lots of comics as a kid. Like I used to get like Rupert the Bear comics when when it was still a viable thing to do a weekly licensed Rupert the Bear comic, you know. But these, I looked and I was like, this is genuinely visually exciting. And he's really respected. So like everyone I know who's about my age adores his work. And, you know, he went on to do a lot of concept work and, you know, film work and stuff like that. So clearly I recognised something in that it just tweaked something in me. How on earth it did, because I had no backing in the in like it, I didn't live in a house where like art was discussed. You know, we were a very normal sort of middle-class family my parents had come from quite humble backgrounds and were just you know working people so how on earth i knew that that was a good artist i have no idea what and and, and when was the point where i mean maybe it happened already but like was there a point where you felt that like art was something that you like could be something you could do 
I, I just remember being told repeatedly that art was something that I couldn't do, believe it or not, um, and which made me want to do it. Um, like, I wanted to draw all the time. I wasn't a great... You know, like, you see some people and their drawings as kids were amazing. You know, like, <laughs> you can see that they they absolutely understood, you know, volume and perspective and everything else. I didn't. I would sort of try and copy. They don't. They weren't very good. Um I'd try and I'd put colour on there because colour kind of saves you a little bit, you know, but really that's not helping you learn how to draw. That's just so you can spend longer working on your pages that aren't particularly very good. So, yeah, I was just and then I did like GCSE art and, you know, you just used to do objective drawing. You'd have to draw, you know, a torch or something like that. It was infuriating. It was nothing to do with and just being getting C's and D's and thinking we're not doing what I actually like doing here. And and they eventually let me do the sort of things I wanted to do. Then I'd get better marks. But that wasn't what art teachers wanted you to do at school. So I always felt like I have to do this on my own time. I have to do the practice on my own time. School is not going to help me learn to do art. And so I just had to try and work it out for myself in the pre-internet age with no help from anybody. <laughs> and and what, what kept you going during that period? Because I, I mean, I suppose my... I before I became an author like a doing fiction my thing was always that I was going to do like visual art you know mm. I was going to do comics or animation and I, I don't looking back I I had no aptitude for it like, that's what I always find really surprising looking back is that's like what on earth <laughs> made me think that, that was something but I think because I loved stories and I loved like you say like the images and like mm. the dynamism of those like moments where I can't even put it into words where I sometimes there's a few images and panels that I look at and something goes funny in my chest like my heart yeah. lifts I feel almost like a vertigo and I can't really explain that and I never really figured out abstracted why that was happening it was just something I think maybe that's why I never got any further but I, I again like I found art GCSE quite brutal in like what I was being asked to do versus what I was interested in um mm. what do you think kind of kept you going if you're surrounded by people going I don't think you the, this is really viable and you're then studying art and a lot of it isn't what you hoped for what made you want to keep going isolation I lived miles away from all my friends I lived in a village um and didn't have access to a car I couldn't ride my bike to my friends houses they all lived perhaps I went to a school that was, you know, a few towns away. And when you're a kid, that might as well be 100 miles if your friends all live around that school. And it had quite a big catchment area because it was the Yorkshire Dales. It's sparsely populated country. So you might have had friends who live 25 miles away. And when you're 14, a friend who lives 25 miles away might as well live on the Isle of Wight or on the moon. You know, you can't get to them unless your dad drives you there. And your dad, I, ne I never used my parents like a, like a taxi, you know, so I didn't feel good about that. And so I, I had a lot of time to fill at home. So I lived in my own world making stuff. I made comics. I made zines. I wouldn't draw all year round. I would have intense bursts for perhaps a month, get frustrated that what I was making didn't look professional. I mean, the idea that it would at 13. But I didn't. I wasn't one of those kids who can produce like a stack of hundreds of pages they made when they were 13. I might have generated 20 to 30 pages of comics a year some years. And that would have been a lot. But it was, there, but there was always progress. So 
something kept me going but really yeah like it my time was divided up between make my little sort of zine making my messing about on the computer like i used to there were all sorts of like 8-bit and 16-bit kind of builder programs like shoot 'em up construction kits i was always trying to make something and it was just how can i channel channel this energy to create to make little worlds into something maybe comics will work maybe video games will work maybe just making really self-referential weird zines will work and and it was just one of several streams that eventually comics i kind of worked out was the one where i could maybe make a go of it did it so a lot of people i've spoken to whatever area they're working in they felt like there's often a sort of if not a mentor figure then a kind of like permission figure someone who produces something who either says like you can do this or something that they see created that they go oh you're allowed to make stuff like this Mm. and I'm wondering if there was at any point something that you read or someone that you met or some scene that you encountered where you're like oh there's people out there like me or there's something that like what I want to do Mm. or were you completely in a a vacuum i was in I, complete isolation until in doing this not not in my life i wasn't you know i wasn't i had was quite social really just for somebody who could never see anybody for long periods of time like in the holidays and stuff but i was embarrassed almost by what i was producing because it had no shape and i didn't feel i had permission until i was in my early 20s when i started i finished university i'd done a journalism degree i didn't really want to do like court reporting and like straight journalism i'd done a lot of music journalism at university and i was kind of tired of it i was like i've done what i thought well i've interviewed bands now i've got free records do you know what this isn't the rest of my life you know i knew it wasn't i could have kept down that path but i didn't and i thought oh but then i really like comic strips i'd really got into the sort of big collections of comic strips american comic strips syndicated and i thought like you know what these aren't so well drawn that with my limited skill I couldn't do this and although I'm not the greatest story writer I can write gags because I've been writing jokes and daft stuff for years and years and years and I, I sort of worked out the skill set I've got the tool set I've got will fit into the American syndicated strip model even though I don't live in America and it's very unlikely I could get a strip syndicated and I, I was sort of trying to get a job in magazine production because um, I didn't want to write but I would still wanted to work in publishing and for, so for a couple of months, I was just sitting at home at my parents' house, kind of applying for jobs and to look busy. So they didn't send me out to work plucking chickens or something. Um, I got to work on like submission packets of strips. And it was like, oh, yeah, even though they weren't that good, I actually got very positive feedback letters from the American syndicates. They were like, I remember getting a letter back from um, King Features, which was full of like useful notes and this is this works well this works well do a little bit more of this and resubmit and it was like this is a this is the permission this is now i've worked out what i can actually do with my skills i mean because they if if someone takes the time to give specific feedback like no one's paying them to do that they 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 mean it right if they if they if they if they bother to do that and then say do this and then resubmit they're not being kind they they mean it i mean it is a nice thing to do but they it's sincere it's the greatest gift professionally that i was ever given was that feedback letter where it was a standard feedback form with like check boxes on it but he'd annotated all down the sides he'd written in biro notes and i still have it um and the guy unfortunately is tragic really he was um he was a pretty he was the editor i think at king features 
and um, he died in a surfing accident in the early 2000s. I never got to meet him, and I've actually worked for Universal Uclick, which is the company that is kind of, you know, contains all the IP. So I, I actually do work with that company now, and I know the wow. editors there. And and so, yeah, it's it's peculiar. It's peculiar, but it's yeah, it's annoying that I used to have it. Annoying things I can't remember his name. He had a, he was I think he was Jay something. I should have this to hand, but the pandemic has rotted my brain, unfortunately. But I'll never forget what he did, even if I can't dis- you know, despicably, I can't remember his full name. And and can you? I I I know you've I know you've sort of um you have like discussed this before, but I I was wondering if you could talk to us about how the the kind of like beginnings of your um. Have you can I when when you're looking at the syndicated comics that you're saying you're into just I just wanted to pick up on that a second were there mm. any ones in particular that you liked or enjoyed or thought oh this is actually good or were you or were you simply see, seeing them as like because the ways you can be inspired are partly this is amazing I would love to sort of move towards this north star knowing I'll never mm. achieve those heights and sometimes you see something and go this is making money and I don't yeah, think it's the, so yeah, exactly. good that I can't imagine doing something of the same quality, right? Like sometimes something can be bad and it can be inspiring because you can go, well, I could do that. Yeah, no, no, I do have one where, where it's like I'm I'm not cynical enough. When I attempt to be cynical and say, oh, I can make something in this shape and this is a shape that works, what I produce is monstrous, and and not and I can see I can see the cynicism in it. No, it was Calvin and Hobbes, which was huge. I was lucky to have been of the era of essentially the greatest. I mean, you could say Peanuts is the greatest modern cartoon strip, but I'd say that's a 60s cartoon strip, you know, and it's its infancy is kind of what is influential. And by the 90s, it was very much an old man's kind of, um, you know, his his life's work, whereas Calvin Hobbes only has a 10 year run and it coincides with me growing up. And it was so good and so far in advance of everything and so beautiful and done from such a principled point in terms of like merchandising and things like that, in that Bill Watson, who made it, wouldn't make merchandise of it other than books. It was kind of a template for a kind of behaviour, a kind of professional behaviour, and a kind of world building within a limited format, because the American newspaper strip shrunk over the years to the point where it's very small. You know, that that was the inspiration, really. I didn't think I was as good an artist as Bill Watson. I'll never be as good an artist as him. He was blessed with a he is blessed with a genius that both told him how to make this great strip and also when to stop completely. <laughs> so yeah, that, that was it really. And, and so, you know, how do you start? You, you, you measure the size of the panels, you draw the panels the same size, you measure the height of the letters, you draw the letters the same size and you're like, right, well, that's the start. Now I put me in here. I put me in this empty box and can you and can you talk about like what that what that started to look like for you when you were when you were creating your own pieces? Well, initially it was just crude because there are lots of things about the way comic strips are designed. I'd grown up with comic books so, and I'd learned to draw figures based on realistic figures. I mean, we're not talking photorealistic figures, but I'd learned proportions and things like that and anatomy and stuff. And I didn't want to draw in a sort of you know what you would think of as a cartoon, how Garfield or peanuts or calvin hobbs is like shrunken figures with giant heads or whatever i wanted to keep working within normal human proportions because 
that was what felt real to me. So I tried to look at like a sitcom sensibility because I liked American sitcoms and the early 90s were and, and late 80s were a rich time for those and trying to apply what I'd learned watching sitcoms, try and just work, unpick the beats of those sitcoms and then apply them to a strip. It sounds, I was just trying to shove everything I could that I knew at a time of little experience into making something that would work as a strip. I didn't want to make a Calvin Hobbes strip. I wanted to make a strip that was me. And I don't think I was confident enough in myself until the early 2000s to, or late 90s rather, to be able to do that when I was kind of in my early 20s. I didn't feel particularly well formed before that. I, like, I, I, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to... Just, it's, it's, I, 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 occasionally when I'm chatting to people, there comes a point where I, I, I sort of don't want to embarrass them by kind of like fawning over their work. And so just by all means, um, ignore this. But I, I just think one of the things that I find amazing about your work, and I think as someone who writes, works only in text that something like I'm incredibly jealous of is how you work with characters posture and their positioning in relation to one another that's gonna sound like very but like dialogue beats in text are like the bane of my life like I'm constantly trying to move these characters to explain where they are in relation to each other and give a sense of how they're how they're positioned and what their gestures are. And I think one of the things that comes across so strongly in your strips uh, right from the beginning, but like even, but but now I just, it's something that I constantly think is a pleasure in every panel is how characters are posing when they're, well, they're not posing, they're in motion, but you know, how, how when they say something, what they're doing, how they're standing in relation to each other, the dyna- power, the dynamics that those suggest, the everything about it is so exciting. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you take a format where it's often two people saying words at each other and create such variance and tone and ring so much um, emotion and humor and poignancy and all those things out of what in it you know in essence is often quite a simple set of you know if you just took the words and had she said she said um you know would you know would be quite simple yeah well that's it that the drawing is where you have to add the richness because never will you get as much I mean, i'm still basically filling a page and then stopping at the end of it by in the amount that I actually write, the amount, that I, the amount of words that I physically write are still about as many words as I want to write and then I can stop. So all, with comics, you know, the, all the acting I have to do in my head, I have to act every single character and kind of channel physically onto the page. I have to think about the posing. I have to think about the attitude of every character as I'm doing it. And obviously, as you get better at drawing, you can lean into all kinds of techniques that will suggest acting through very loose kind of creation of forms. Um, and you can sort of you can start to discover things about character on the page as you're drawing them and you feed that back into your into your own head in, in how you're acting. Like I'm I did a bit of acting at school, but I was not Olivier, you know, it's like but I'm always thinking about the acting that I did in terms of when I'm portraying the characters, you know, I'm just trying to draw on observation and of other people. I'm constantly observing. I like to see how people inter 
relate. And also, again, I'm still kind of isolated. <laughs> like I moved down from Manchester about six years ago because of my girlfriend's job in London. And I now live kind of in like sort of the suburbs between London and Cambridge. And so I'm starved of people, basically. So I'm kind of constantly trying to bring people to life. It probably, it probably sounds quite sad. And in a way, it is quite sad. <laughs> but I'm trying to put more people in the world than I see on a day-to-day basis. And that I get, kind of gets channeled into this as well. It's the same method of filling the space as when I was a kid. Can you talk about some of those characters? Because I... I, I, I it's it that's an sorry if some of the some of my things i'm saying but i always feel bad when i'm like explaining someone's work back to them because it sounds not often uh, i feel slightly inarticulate and i go like your work is good and has people in and that's a good thing but that but that's genuinely the kind of level of dumb question i want to ask is can you talk a little bit about some of your characters and how you say you discover them on the page but yeah. I wonder if you could do your process through, like, d- d- does a character start to sort of, you know, do, do, do they, do you always go, I want to write this person, or do they, do you get an intimation? Do, do you start picking up a little shopping bag of characters you want to use in something at some stage in the future, and they kind of get in a little roster that you eventually go, I can recruit you for this story? Or how, is, how have you slowly been building up your cast? Well, they're born, they were born simply like the initial characters that I did for those syndicated strips, which were kind of like the wellspring for everything I did afterwards. You know, it, it's it's like a sort of they're, they're quite sort of protean, you know, that I drew a few archetypes with a fairly primitive kind of skill set that I had. And um, I printed them out on paper and I, I cut them out and I lay them on the table and I just sort of looked at them and I thought, who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? It seems crazy. I just got a, my first inkjet printer. It was just exciting to be able to print something out on card. That was a big day for me. But that's really it. They were very boring, bland archetypes. And the initial ones, you know, I was just thinking, how do you make a friends type show? We have this sort of mix of characters, you know, you have, and and they didn't have a lot about them and it's only through writing that I've learned about the characters and and writing and making the characters has been about getting rid of that embarrassment that I talked about before and being willing to basically put every foible I have and every foible I've observed into these vessels but that you know because it's been a 20 year span the process has changed over the years like some of those old characters i never want to see them again i've i wrote too much for them essentially i poured too much into one vessel and and they curdle you know they're not they're not good anymore there are characters that one of the first characters who i invented for that strip that original strip that i was going to have syndicated was a character called shelly winters who i named accidentally after the actress from the poseidon adventure and I don't know why she has persisted. I'm still doing stories with her in now. And for some reason, she can hold an almost infinite number of stories. I I don't know why she's different to all the other characters. She goes through ups and downs. She doesn't age as fast as me because I don't really want to write about people's physical decline. (laughs) That's 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 pretty much it. I'm not ready to write about people's physical decline. And I think there's something inherently depressing about having created young characters and then show them kind of crumbling i think that's interesting but even though she ages slower than me i've still taken her through an incredible number of iterations and 
as I say, most of them, it's just I, I am older. I can put more of my mistakes in here, you know, and it's true of all the characters. And eventually I just run out of road. However, I created them. Eventually there's no more to say with them, I find. And then I have to create new characters who will be able to accommodate who I am now. But I'm not. But their birth, when I have to make up new characters for a new thing, it's very, very, very hard to push them out into the world. You know, like to create a shape I've never drawn before helps. You know, a character who looks like nothing I've done before. That will suggest new things. There's room here. Just a new person that I've met will often suggest one trait or just a character on television, an actor I've never seen before will suggest a trait. I'm like, ah, well, there's something here I can start with and I can build on top of this. The foundation will be something quite small. And on, the, on the series I'm working on at the moment, Steeple, I had to create all the characters anew. I had one, and initially the, the series didn't work, um, not when, not in print, but when I first started working on it, it was missing a character and the characters couldn't play off each other properly. I had Billy, the sort of young, fairly naive trainee vicar i had the old kind of fighting vicar the old man and i had the the bad guys but i didn't have maggie the character who in the end i think is the most important character in steeple she just wasn't there but then i drew her and i looked at her and i said right this is the piece this is the puzzle piece that joins everybody together this is like the uh this is the person who holds the family together and once i knew that this was the person who would who was a kind of the um the emollient for the series it turned it from a quite hostile series to a friendly series and so sometimes it just takes somebody me putting someone nice on the page to draw everything everyone together can i can i uh, drill into that process for a, a little bit so what is the series when you when what is what components do you have when you are um working on it and realizing maybe it's not it doesn't feel like it's gelling as you want and, and when you say and then I draw you know I and then I, I, I drew her and I, I suddenly I felt like I had someone for everyone else to kind of yeah not orbit around but I have someone who can sort of act on this community in a way that that binds them all mm-hmm. um like how does that in practical terms how is that manifesting were you writing strips with the other ones were you writing notes and you couldn't imagine them were you did you have a sketchbook and none of the characters were or 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 had you written versions of some of the strips and and then thought oh i'll just add this new character what how did that process look well i was initially when i was working it out i wasn't sure whether i would pitch it for print i wasn't sure if it would be a web comic where i just do page a day as i had done in the past and so i was just kind of trying to i was trying to like block out effectively 22 pages which could be an issue could be 22 strips or whatever because i can kind of i can flip between the two i can make strips that work as pages now i know how to do it and but when I was writing it, I just knew that the series didn't have a heart. I knew that it felt downbeat, it felt downcast. And I knew that it wouldn't be a fun place for people to visit. Like everybody was had problems, but there was nobody who was going to put their arm around their shoulder, you know. So I just set it to one side. I couldn't see that character. And then where she came from, do you know, I think if I remember rightly, I just looked, I was in Soho. I'd gone to Gosh Comics and Soho is next to a show called Bleach London, which is a fashion fashionable hairdressers a fashionable size and a girl came out with big silver dyed hair and i just looked at it and went 
there's something there, you know. Ladies are getting their hair dyed grey. They're getting a big old silver mane. There's there's something there, and I and I just sort of started doodling in my sketchbook, and that's literally it came from the hair. It was like this big wave of silver hair, and I was like, yeah. And initially, I didn't even draw her with silver hair. She had like black hair. I thought, no, I've got to make because I you know I tried different versions, and she she was going to be sort of all black. She's going to be like, a, but I was like, no, I'll I'll do the silver hair. I'll I'll try that, and it worked straight away when I stood her because I. I work on paper mostly when I'm working things out. I'm just filling pages of lined paper with little faces, little notes of dialogue. I'll, I'll break this page down into columns and I'll write the names of the characters at the top and just write a list underneath of things I could do that might work. And that was kind of what I did. And, and, and she just came out of that process, really. And as I say, and just seeing something that I knew visually would be fun to draw. And if I mixed it up with certain other characteristics that I thought I never do- I hadn't done before, like initially in the first few issues, she rides a motorbike, she rides a big Harley. And in the end, I drove it into the sea because it was so hard to draw. It was so <laughs> horrible drawing this motorbike. I was like, no, I'm destroying this. I'm never, I'm not, I'm not putting her on this bloody motorbike. It's, it was a nightmare. It was a constant nightmare. There's so many bits of like tubing on this thing. I did a little, I had a 3D model, so I wasn't even having to like pencil it every time. I could spin the model around, kind of do a screen grab, and then work around it. And still, I'd be there inking every little part of its engine. And I was like, nah, I can't do this anymore. So she's still got like the leather jacket and the biker boots and the kind of slightly sort of um, outlaw attitude, but she doesn't have the bike anymore. <laughs> See, this is you. You've made the you you made the difficult decisions that someone like Katsuhiro Otomo refused to, right? Like he, you know, doing Akira, and he's like, "We're going to have bikes. They're going to be at night." And then my next animated movie, let's just let's have it all about steam. I'm going to be animating steam almost. Yeah, every... yeah, yeah. No, that, that's <laughs> it. I, it was, you know, you, there are decisions you make about character, and you, I'm pretty safe. I'm a good. I think I'm a pretty good drawer of the human figure. Doesn't matter who I've decided to draw. If I can't do it the first ten times, I'll pre- I'll do it ten more times until they make sense. But motorbikes, no, no, that's a character you want to avoid. That's a good tip for writers who also draw. Just keep away from anything <laughs> involving a lot of chrome, where you've got to draw wiggly lines on it to indicate a nice high shine, and also a hundred different tailpipes. Keep absolutely avoid that. <laughs> with a with a motorbike, like you can, if you decide. I've got to ditch this. You can do that without changing the plot, but I, I, I want, But obviously, so there's other things in a in a series that are kind of mm-hmm. you, you could keep the plot as you as you normally had it while kind of making those those changes. And I, I wonder how much. I know this is a this is a very kind of hacky question, but how much of the story do you have in mind when you start out? And because the way you describe a lot of the characters, it it sounds to me a bit like like I'm gonna just bring in my whole nerd baggage here in it but it sounds like kind of role playing it sounds like playing dungeons and dragons and finding your character where you start off with a rough archetype and they go on adventures and they gain backstory and depth yes. and quite a way in your kind of your character who you thought was just going to be a kind of like goofy sidekick has become this kind of character that with with unexpected poignance and all these different things i wondered like how how much of an arc you have how much of a shape you have and how much wiggle room you have to change things i think i leave myself as much space as is humanly possible and it has been to the detriment of my career at times that process it has worked well 
in large part because I've had huge long runs on things. You know, I'm used to years and years and years of development. And unfortunately, I actually found when I was once, because I did the series Giant Days that was built on my old strips. It took a character from my old strips who was very well developed, put her in a world where she was well developed and I could build the other characters around her. But unfortunately, when I had to do strips that were entirely whole cloth, I found that I didn't, and and so I did a limited series called By Night that was 12 issues, and I I should have known more about the characters going in. So it's a double-edged sword. It gives you huge space if you've got the time to really build characters up. Um, And I really like manga. I've only got into manga perhaps in the last sort of five years, and the long, long runs of things, you can watch the development as it happens, and they're really building it from nothing at the start you know it's just a cool idea in the first you know book and then they build and they build and they build and they build and they add new characters they're quite profligate in the addition of new characters because they've got to feed these long runs on successful stories and and that's an enjoyable way to work because you can really explore whereas if you you come into it with a a telephone book as there's one for the kids a telephone book thick um show bible that you've written for yourself and all your dreams and schemes all locked down they give you five issues they cancel you what's the point you know that's it so you know sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't but it's yes that role-playing analogy i mean i'm not i'm not a a role-playing game fan i I, you know i i found that the things that i enjoyed most about playing role-playing games was making up the characters and i had other ways to use the characters that i made up if that makes sense but I, your analogy works perfectly. You know, it is. It's all about improvisation, building, you know, the experiences into them. And they just grow like people grow. You add something in, it changes slightly who they are. And um, sometimes a character will change all out of recognition. And sometimes that means that they're more interesting. Sometimes it means you've got to write them out. Or they can head towards a generic point. That's always the great danger where your characters converge to a generic point and you've got two of the same character. And again, at that point, you've got to get rid of one of them somehow. Can you as a can you talk about any times I'm just going to assume that this has happened at some times mm. when a character has changed in a way that surprised you when you came to a moment and they reacted in a way that you th- or they respond in a way that you hadn't planned and you thought oh that feels right but I wasn't ex- this wasn't my plan for them or that they did grew in a way that made you go oh oh goodness okay they're not the person that I necessarily guessed they were yeah um well the I can try to think of two good examples um, I did a, a series, Giant Days, and that ran for sort of about 60 issues worth of comics. That was about 1,200 pages, I guess, 1,200, 1,300 pages. And, and around two-thirds of the way through the run, Daisy, who starts off just as a, a naif, if, if that is how one pronounces that word, not a word I've ever said out loud before, but she starts, you know, <laughs> she's quite unworldly. And she goes through all the different experiences of university in the comic and it gets to about two thirds of the way through. And she's been quite a doting granddaughter. And then she has a falling out with her grandmother and the way she responds, I think in the comic, I don't think it spoils anything to say that she just she's just arguing with her grandmother, who previously has been like the apple of her eye. And she and she just pours milk all over the like four pints of milk all over the kitchen table. And I was like, I could never have imagined starting writing this this sort of sweet character that she would become so unhinged. 
and there were lots and exploring how somebody who's unworldly is kind of suddenly and it's i think it, it spoke to me about university and how people do go off the, the rails completely because that the inputs are so fierce of of adult life and so that was a good example and Giant Days was sort of a pure character writing experience in that it didn't have any sort of supernatural plot devices or whatever. It, it gave me a lot of room to explore just building character. It was a, it was a really, really pure experience that way. I wonder for um, people who haven't, uh, but first, I wonder if you could, because we've, talked, we've touched on Steeple uh, and like some of the stuff, and I wondered if you could talk a bit about, like a little pricey about... Um, what's what that's about because it, it strikes me as that's like for people who haven't read your work that's like quite quite a good recent jumping on point i think it's an excellent recent jumping on point yes it is because there isn't that much of it that's a that's a very good jumping on point and it's and it's a new thing steeple is about uh, a trainee vicar moves to a little cornish town she's going to um she's the new curate and uh she gets there and the second she arrives she you know, her car breaks down and she's kind of immediately makes friends with a young woman who turns out to be a trainee priestess in the Church of Satan. And they immediately they just get on great straight away. They're like, oh, wow, I've just met my best friend immediately. And so it, she starts this new job away from home. And I don't want to spoil the, the first one because there is a twist uh, which um, which changes changes the whole series at the end of the first volume but it was about exploring you know we live in a society that's kind of so didactic now and purity tests are constant yet none of us really operate in a mode of absolute purity except online we're all making constant moral decisions and compromises because none of us operates as a a sort of you know as a monk or you know like a warrior monk none of us can be that pure so that is kind of what steeple is about but um, you know, it's a supernatural sort of wicker man setup, but then I just superimposed a kind of fairly gentle family sitcom on top of that, except the family, instead of being, you know, actually related, uh, are this kind of dissolute group thrown together, some of whom worship, you know, the Dark Lord, Satan, the Great Deceiver, and the others are like super pious constantly trying to like repel the forces of satan but yet somehow they have to get along because they live in a small town and there's not a lot of choice and and yeah and, and billy and maggie the two who meet right at the start are kind of the that's what unites the two sides and absolutely they can't that that bond cannot be unbroken at that point and compromise is constant i i i grew up in a small rural english town and i wondered if we could touch on something that I think is definitely present in this but I think it's fair to say has appeared through a lot of your work which is the the like weirdness and Englishness I don't know if those two if you if those are reasonable characterizations and whether you could talk about like 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 communities that are simultaneously very ordinary and very strange I suppose is what I'm yeah looking at yeah like I mean, I think 
England is less idiosyncratic than it was 20 years ago. But I think we've been homogenized by the Internet, which has kind of homogenized us with America. And so a lot of the weirdness that I'm writing about is kind of the weirdness I remember from the 90s, where things were still peculiar and questions couldn't be answered quite as easily. But I see it all the time. I see it constantly. And I'll give you an example. We we live on this, a street. This was actually one of the inspirations for Steeple with a church and the church is only perhaps 20 houses down the, the street from us. And I was talking to one of my neighbours and her parents lived next door to the church. And she says, yeah, we reckon the vicar's lost his faith. You know, it's like, yeah, so right. So you've got a church with vicar who's got no faith, but he's still out there every Sunday kind of preaching. And like the, the last sign that went up before he left, because he eventually packed in, just said, pray for Brexit <laughs> on outside the church. Like he'd gone, he'd fully gone. And that that sort of thing constantly informs my work. And then but now we have a new vicar, very different, very different figure. I'm not I don't want to give away too much. I, I like the look of our new vicar. I think she looks like a fun character. In fact, it's a bit strange. They've kind of given us a Billy Baker style um, vicar, which is amazing. I can't believe what's happened. But um, a sign went up and I don't know if she was responsible for it. I suspect that she wasn't. And it, after Prince Philip died, it said, come in, dot, 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 light a candle, dot, 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 pray to sir. And again, it was like, what's going on here? You're going to pray to the ghost of Prince Philip. I, is that, is that, is, 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 is that within the beliefs of the, is it, is it serious? And there you go. That's England. That's what this weird this is what happens when there's no kind of um, coordination, when people are just idiosyncratic and just start bumbling off in their own direction. And as much as we are now homogenised, I think this weirdness now manifests in a hundred new and peculiar ways. You know, like adverts I see on bus stops, like like spelling is like breaking down and grammar is breaking down in marketing because for whatever reason, people just don't spot things on screen when they're proofing things and they never proof it on paper. And I, you know, I saw an advert for sort of pies. Oh, no, it was expensive ready meals on the back of the Telegraph. And I looked at it. It made no sense at all. None of the words made sense. They, obviously, a piece of copy had been lost in the editing process, not replaced. You know, there was sort of an asterisk that led to nothing. <laughs> and, a, and a sense that they were going to knock up your posh ready meals on the same day and bring them to your house. You know, like all order had vanished from this marketing. And it was like, this is England. Even though like the old ways of being eccentric have vanished, we're now manifesting new peculiar ways of just being really oddball. I, I, I It's so funny. Like everything you're saying is like re resonates with me so much. We had the Reverend Richard Coles came to our night in London and he was talking about the C of E as being this actual wonderful for him, in his experience, a, a kind of safe space for a lot of people who felt a bit peculiar. He said, you, you know, odder people than you would expect, maybe, who don't even necessarily have a faith, but it's a place they can come and feel safe. And he said that the vicars often didn't really necessarily totally believe in, mm. in, in God or, or, or Jesus, although he's definitely an Englishman, but but is he divine? We don't really know. And and he talked about somebody he knew who had had finally, you know, lost their job, 
having having said that they they had to they had to they said they believed in God not at all, and that was the point. Uh, up until <laughs> then, it had been okay, but um, <laughs> I, I, I and 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 but a lot of when I read your especially with like uh steeple, it reminds me a lot of when I've done rural touring as a as a performance poet and gone mm. to these like um either small rural pubs or small rural art centres and they're run by people for the love of them and they're run by people in a community who've not necessarily been brought together because they would naturally be friends but because there's only so many people in the community to do so many jobs there's like one person who knows how to do electrics and lighting so that person is going to be coming Mm. to the poetry gig whether they like poetry or not there's another person who's going to be the treasurer because they're the person who put themselves forward and you get these wonderful sort of Katamari Damasi balls of kind of like different yes, people yeah. together. No, absolutely. And that, and that is, yeah, I, I, I can only write about England because it's all I know. You know, obviously I've travelled, but I, I've not done with it. I'm not done with how weird this country is and how confused England is. And I, I think the older I get, the more the sort of the disparity at the heart of like, it's, we're a country who don't really know who we are, England, because we are also the, the dominant force in the UK. And if you take away the other parts of the nice regional accents from adverts and newsreaders, then and what you're left with is sort of England, this confused country without a head and without one arm. And Cornwall is like a country in and of itself as well. You know, that's why I like writing about Cornwall, because Cornwall is is off on its own and you know yeah there are cornish separatists yeah they who yeah exactly so it gives me a chance to both write about england and also write about the separateness of england and the any chance to just veer off in your own direction and try and create some kind of individuality is i think is really is really valuable you know you either if you're not a conformist in england you are a person without a country if you don't conform to the sort of the message of the kind of corporate England, then you you don't have a country really, and you have to make your own country. And I think that's what English eccentricity is. Can you talk a little bit about um, uh, the the kind of like the uh, the occult? I know you dancing around sort of specific spoilers or things like that, but the kind of like mm. just that kind of um, as a kind of like uh, vibe and theme and informing different characters the occult because i was you know getting like like you say the, the kind of wicker man is like a one touchstone for people but i the like the i getting like strong find horn vibes as well um uh fr- fr- from from it this idea of and also the normalized things you know like that we that we understand that there's like one set of worship which is like church which is mundane and and normal and then but anything outside that is 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 bizarre and superstitious and and weird yeah i wonder if you could well, talk about that informing your stories in your work well i mean again i looked at the c of e because it's a you know it's shrinking congregations it's a, you know it's sort of it was a very modern organization when it was invented <laughs> because it completely broke with the orthodoxies of the catholic church and like you say it's a broad church that would actually encompass lots of people and it's pretty forgiving you know women vicars female bishops all these things you know a lot more um you know letting lgbtq people in and and just welcoming them rather than shaming them you know all this really good and yet this is the shrinking church where when you see the congregations outside it's 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 nanas it's nanas it's a it's a cloud of gray 
outside whereas the churches which grew were things like charismatics and things like this which were just I, I looked at them and I was like, do you know what? These are much harsher environments where you're going to be told that you're going to burn. You are going to burn. And this yeah. is what people want. And I just took it to its, you know, if people are that interested in a kind of didactic system. Then it's one of two things. Either you want you're going in, you're going to hell or you accept that we're all going to hell. and I'm going to do whatever I want. A sort of I mean do what thou willst was kind of what I was thinking of when I thought about what the church the church it represents you know what people think of as kind of like secular life which i don't think is true at all most people are nominally humanist you know they're kind of they they operate within a basically you know theo theological morality structure but they're not talking about the big sky wizard whereas i just kind of thought well what the opposite of that if people truly are super hedonistic then it just be the church of satan just do whatever you want all the time and don't feel bad about it so that was what i was trying to and that gave you so much room to operate, because if people had a binary choice between those two things, I think most people, if you take the church represented by this kind of very in steeple, it's Mrs. Clovis, the old kind of church caretaker, housekeeper lady who's who appears to be super moral and very judgmental. And the vicar who's not interested anymore because he's always off just bashing mermen over the head because he thinks they're agents of Satan. Which would you choose? <laughs> Which, or would you choose the church of Satan where everyone's just laughing it up all the time and doing whatever they want? And the guy in charge seems quite playful. He's a good laugh, isn't he? You know, you'd all go to the church of Satan. Of course they would. The only joke of steeple is that they've chosen a, a church rather than just to go to the pub. <laughs> you know, they've just got into it. It's just proved very, very popular. <laughs> I, I think that like in small communities as well, there is something that I noticed when I would go to. I'm sorry to keep relating this to poetry. <laughs> I said like I'm sounding very one note, but also, but also I think with any kind of like interest, there's often people where they'll the, you know it'll be the only game in town you know that they'll be yeah. like if you if you you might join the darts team not because you're a big lover of darts but because they're like that will account for six people or whatever you know include mm. and and if you don't play darts then quite a lot of the people that you might be friends with are, are, are like accounted for you might go and play skittles you might join the the choir because everybody's at the choir <laughs> like you yeah. and, and 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 you people oddly in small communities can end up being a bit more daring with the kind of activities they do because that's you have what's to. on offer yeah exactly that's what's on offer you, you know you've not got a lot of choice you've not you're not going to be able to go off and do your own thing you're not going to be able to go and submerge yourself in the anonymity of like going to like big gigs in london but there's something going on in town oh, we'll go along it's something to do isn't it it's something to it's something to do i think is like you know a pretty good driver of activity yeah it's something to do and that's such a and of course that's why the joke is so funny because that's very, very, very funny when applied to the Church of Satan, right? <laughs> it's something exactly, I can yeah. imagine. The thing is, like that, having grown up in these communities, having worked in a uh, uh, in a village where the pub I worked at was the only thing that wasn't a house in the village. Like they, we did Ouija boards when we closed down at the end of the night, and the landlady spoke. She believed. She spoke to. She they. She spoke to the ghost, and she would just go. She would speak to the Ouija board in her Somerset accent. She'd go, they didn't, it wasn't a thing. They'd go, she'd go, all right, my love, how are you doing then? They'd go, have you got anything to say to us tonight? Thank you, my darling. It was like that. And that's how, and that's how we talked. And it wasn't, 
in any way she would she would cash up the tills and then come and sit down and channel spirits and it wasn't exactly. in any way a... isn't it but enjoyable <laughs> yeah it was it was not a thing i'm just remembering that now and going yeah that was that was what we did but it was also the whole community was oh gosh so <laughs> it's very very true feels very true to me i was wondering if you could talk um john about like, when you've had periods presumably you've had periods where you when you get stuck or when something feels like it's not working for you mm. how do you identify that and get around it i do you know i often find myself in trouble because i'm i'm very structured in how i work i can continue to produce when i'm not inspired just because of the kind of unitary way that i work everything's worked out structurally so that there's always another page to draw the writing's all been done before the drawing happens and so i can actually march quite a long way down a road not really able to tell that what i'm producing isn't feeling good until it'll you know in the same way as like you know a, a standard kind of domestic grumble you know will escalate into a fight but it was never about what the grumble was about oh look at that why do you always put the plates and the bowls in the wrong order in the dishwasher and it's actually then by the end of it you're crying oh my feet are too big oh I, <laughs> this has been my whole life of giant feet i'm so sorry i never meant those things i said about the plate and the bowls it's just about my feet they're so long why have i got such long feet it's like that i won't i'll get to the you know the I won't realise there's a problem until there's a problem later. And I think the one, the thing is, don't overwork yourself, which is something I've done many times. I mean, the pressures of the kind of American comics industry are such that they will work you until you explode. And um, it's the American, you know, one week of holiday a year ethos. They will, if you don't learn how to say no, you will, they will hear yes forever and they will eventually grind you down into a fine powder. So one was learning how to work in different work cultures, which I'm only really just starting to do now. The other thing is to have a few horses on the go at any one time. Like when I would just do like one series and it ran forever, I kind of had to anthologize all my ideas into one thing, which eventually just became so cumbersome that I didn't want to work in that sort of milieu, that, that, that universe anymore. So now I try to have ideas at different stages you know one that's perhaps just a few pages of scrawled notes perhaps one that i've some that i've started to break down into like actual like issues you know like 22 pages or 40 pages or whatever issues one that's sort of scripted and so if something's not feeling good i know that even if i've got to finish what i'm working on i've got other things to tinker with um that will scratch a different itch or just allow me to think in a different way i you know again being an artist i can experiment with different page formats or try and do something that's a bit like something else you know like something i've seen that i liked can i somehow do this maybe it works maybe it doesn't but really it's just avoiding overwork you know like if you're just putting out and not putting in and eventually you know the well is going to run dry you can't help it it's it's inevitable nobody is a is a is bottomless um, I was wondering if you had any tips on, this is impossibly broad, but um, good dialogue. Now, I realise like a lot of your dialogue is, is, is you know, it's the, it's the framing around it. It's how the characters are posed. It's the mm. amazing side eyes that they're giving or the conspiratorial looks that they're adding to it that adds the flavour. But I was wondering because uh, the dialogue is, you know, you, you'll often have that, I imagine, 
before you've completely you've mm. got the finished image so you yeah. some of that has to be notional i wonder if you've got any because also i think some of the 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 the, the skills for writing dialogue in comic format translate into fiction as well but also some of them will be specific for people who are trying to write um for the um for, for, for the visual format as well i wonder if you if there's any things you've learned over the years well i've i've learned nothing from other comics to be honest with you well not but i learned from strips so i've never learned from comic books I'm, I'm not a big fan actually of the dialogue in comic books for the most part i've i i, I mean not so much uh, international books but i think uh, like american mainstream comics i don't think there's anything to learn from them to be honest with you and it's a terrible thing to say because I'm, I'm, i think this would probably get me into trouble but i've never liked the, the actual words there are one or two obviously i'm being very broad and there are writers that i like but they're limited and often i'm kind of having to look past very long speech bubbles expository dialogue you know i'm operating a a world where I'm quite pure you know I don't have to write a lot of expository dialogue and because I'm in charge of the art if I w want to clarify something I'll draw more pages that make it obvious rather than have to write a little you know a recap a long speech bubble so I'm trying to write it's like there's a meter in my head like a rhythm and I'm just trying to match the rhythm so that it's like tum 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 this isn't the actual spondees and dactyls of it you understand but it's like i know that there's a, a rhythm and i've got to hit that rhythm there can't be too many words that like just has to constantly flow it's terrible because it's so abstract but it started i would be watching i was when i first started writing i was trying to write because i was trying to channel father ted in my head the program father ted the rhythm of father ted that that writing seemed so right to me that I would simply try and match. I'd try and hear it in my head, not as Father Ted and Father Dougal and stuff, but just to try and match the way that they could bounce, 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 and it went backwards and forwards and it worked. And once I was able to do that, I got good responses to my work. And again, it's just weird. I just tried to channel what worked for me, whether it was Cheers or whatever, or Seinfeld. And it's funny, I recently got the book where Seinfeld is basically all his stand-up routines broken down line by line. So he every single thought, I think it's like basically one sentence, then you get a double space, then another thing. When I looked at it wrote, written down like that, I was like, I can see in reverse what I was trying to work out from watching his shows when it's broken down this way. It's like, yeah, there it is. There's the rhythm. A a bit a bit a bit a bit and everybody's just doing a bit and 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 it builds so it, yeah really just going by that jerry seinfeld book that came out last year with all his routines and because i think that'll show you how I, what i basically reverse engineered that's that's really that's really interesting because i've often heard like i i always find it funny when like a comedian does a delivers a, a joke or a spontaneous bit, it doesn't get a laugh, and then they're like, "That was worth at least a cadence laugh." Like, like yeah, <laughs> that you, thing you where it has the shape. <laughs> as the shape of it, it has a shape of a joke, and like, like when you start writing comics, you try and get the punchline as the last line. But I would find that I would find punchlines in the middle sometimes, or the best line would be in the middle, and I realise that that's where that is where. <laughs> Ideally, you'd get a laugh if you were on stage and you were, of a, you know, I mean, I'm just guessing, but you're right. It's the cadence. I knew I can see 
that's the cadence of where you're looking for laughs and you're looking for i was looking for more than one laugh per page if yeah, I could and, and then the final panel presumably is like the final panel is like what they call like the, the comedian calls like a the tag so you do the punchline and then you add then there's like a little there's a little delay while the audience have their response uh, a little reaction and then you get to have that extra thing which takes the joke and just like adds a little thing or elaborates on it yeah. in some way so we go oh and it like sets up the next next bit as well well that's it and i find that i like to use italics in strips a lot to emphasize jokes but i i don't like to have too many comics where it would end with an italicization which again seems so microscopic but i know what an italicization means and it means look at me i'm being funny me john arson being funny and i've italicized this so you will notice that i'm being funny but because i'm not too showy i'm not going to always finish with something that i think you should look at and it's really sick when I say it out loud like that. But <laughs> I mean, it's all look at me when it comes down to it. So, and the italicization is look at me, look at these words. This is important somehow. Pay attention. Um, I, I, I think like one other thing I wanted to sort of ask you about to see if you have any thoughts on is you, you talked about like finding characters and finding shapes for them. Do you have any sense of like... <sighs> This is, sorry, this is like impossibly broad to, to put on your shoulders, but what makes for a good character? What does a good character need? They need an internal life. It's as simple as that. I mean, if they have an internal life, they will operate on the page. If, they, if you can understand what motivates them, they will move forward. If a character is just, a, you know, saying like, imagine you're making a character, she's like, I'm trying to think of the most cliched thing you'd be doing, oh, she's like a page three girl, you know, oh, she's brassy, right? And she just comes in and goes, <laughs> she, and like, to me, that's not a character. It's a, it's just a cardboard cutout. You know, you can't, I can't have a character who's just like a bimbo. You can have a character who has all the visual traits of Samantha Fox in the 1980s, but Samantha Fox is a deeply complicated, complex person who has dealt with the male gaze for her entire life has made pop records, has doubtless had some pretty unpleasant experiences, but also some wild experiences, all of which inform who she is. And you've got to think about all of those and why they make the choices that they make at every stage. And if you know why a character is making decisions, you won't find writing them all that difficult, even if they don't, they might not serve the plot that you've come up with. But they will suggest all kinds of new directions. But if you can't find the internal life of a character, and again, like, does Mickey Mouse have an internal life? Well, I don't know anything about Mickey Mouse as a person. I don't find him particularly appealing as a character either. Whereas the kind of Daffy Duck, who seems to be driven by this rage, sometimes the internal life is simply, they have a powerful rage and sense of injustice that they cannot get over. You don't need to know what caused that. The same way you don't need, you don't know what motivates everyone you know. You don't, you may not want to know their private pain, but you need to have a sense that there is some private pain that has made, you know, these characters as irascible as they are or whatever. You know, like it doesn't come from nowhere. You know, maybe someone just dropped Daffy Duck's egg. We don't know. Maybe fell out. It fell out the nest, and they had to put it back in again. But there's some sense of awful injustice that kind of drives that irascibility. So it's it, it it's it's partly about them wanting something. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I might be miss. Uh, no, no, you're right. They, exactly. Like they have to have desires. If but nobody operates in the world without desire. Like the absence of desire, you just smear mayonnaise on white bread every day to put calories inside yourself. You know that. 
that that's not really i mean there are some people actually that's from this american life i remember somebody saying like they they experienced the complete absence of desire after one of their hormones stopped stopped working (laughs) but that's it that's the absence of desire there's no motivation for anything that's depression effectively when you just lost all drive and all desire and i don't think the manifestation of that in a character tends to serve storytelling because they need to be motivated so they have to be driven if a character isn't motivated they can't unless you're writing specifically about depression then or torpor they need motivation and even if someone's torpid there's probably a reason for it and and they normally want to not be experiencing that and one yeah. you know even people who are depressed you don't you 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 do powerfully want to not experience that that exactly, suffering and, exactly. and, uh, you you, you can't anything. act on it but you but you desperately don't want to feel it yeah and, and i suppose your example is also a great where you have characters who are just there to be a prize for the protagonists you know to be impressed by them to be a a judge who gives them the prize who is the person who fancies them and wants to go out with them after they achieve something that that character doesn't have any personal needs driving them through the story they're just there to serve and those end up being very sort of wooden characters where if there's a judge and the judge yeah privately wants to be an excellent judge and they, they want to I don't want any characters like that. I don't want one character on the page who doesn't have a motivation. As soon as a character opens their mouth to interact with another character who already has a motivation, they should have a response. Even if they're simply rejected, are they hurt? Are they not hurt because they're a cocky bastard? It's like there's a immediately you should know something about a character from their first response. Even if it now, if they're just saying uh, that's 50 pence, here's your change. But do they like being behind the till? Do they hate being behind the till? Do they wish they were somewhere else? You can reflect that. I mean, again, that's something which would come out in performance or in drawing it, you know. But immediately, there's another character there and you can use them again. Nothing can be thrown away because you need everybody. You need everything. If I draw a barman in a pub and I've drawn him reasonably well, I've got to be thinking about the next time he's going to appear. Even if he's not going to appear in the pub, he's he's if he's interacted, I will use him again because characters aren't cheap. This is all, you know, you can't just keep throwing, you know, wood on the fire. You've got to grow some, grow some trees. John, I can tell that in another life you would be an amazing uh, dungeon master in Dungeons and Dragons because this is the this is the great problem that um, DMs have in Dungeons and Dragons is people go and meet like the tavern keeper who gets them a drink and they fall in love with that NPC, the non-player character and want to give up the quest and just hang out with the barman <laughs> who you didn't plan, but because you want to give them a bit of life, you know, they, you have they, they, the, the barman makes a snooty comment about how one of the party is dressed and say, you know, and, and it turns out that the barman's always wanted to be a tailor actually, but has been stuck with this cat tavern <laughs> that they inherited from their dad. Um, and, and then they're like, we want to come with us and we'll take you to the city and we'll, you can have your dreams of like becoming a tailor. And you're like, I haven't written a quest for this, but, but it's but players intuitively want to engage with these characters mm. because they have a little backstory and, and and it's always I've always found it much easier when I'm running a game as, as long as I know what any character the party meets wants 
then I thought it was going to be a hell because I was going to be having to improvise because there's players who are improvising and saying, we want to do this. What are the baddies going to do in response? And it turns out it's easy as long as you know what the baddies want. Yeah, yeah, good. Well, we agree then, Tim. It's it, isn't it? That's it. I'm, I'm glad I've got got this wrong because I've been doing it for long enough now that I can't change can't change at this point. Oh well, that's that's well, thank you so much, John. That's really really yeah. That's it's so it's so so useful to hear all that, and it's made me feel very excited to go and write. Um, if people want to find your work, where's the best place for um them to um find? Well, them? there's loads of free comics you can read of mine online at a variety of websites. At the moment, new comics are running like three times a week at steeple.church which is um i know you didn't people didn't know you could have dot church as a as a top level domain name but you can and it costs a fortune it costs a fortune <laughs> don't have dot church also don't have dot horse which is another one i have that costs even more so yeah but then go to steeple.church or there's kind of like an index of my various projects at scarygoround.com um or i'm on twitter as at bad machinery i'll put I'll put links to all of these in the show notes today's episode, so anyone who wants to find them can. Uh, if 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 um, you you don't want to use Google, then you can click in the uh, links there. Thank you so much for coming on the show, John. It's been such a pleasure and a real education to talk to you, and I feel like I've learned so much. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Tim. Thank you so much for listening. And everyone who's listening, I hope you have a wonderful week of writing. <laughs>